Alright ladies and gentlemen, just letting you know, just letting it be known, this is now a Christopher Eubank stan account. <laughs> Watching Batman Medvedev for them two sets and then immediately bottling it. Uh, it is what it is, but in the words, public enemies Chuck D, bring the noise. Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. Hope you guys enjoyed the interview from last week. Um, I do have another interview coming up, uh, probably in next couple of episodes. Maybe not next episode, but um, maybe the episode after that. Um, so stay tuned for that one. Very interesting artist. Um, probably one of the most unique that I've ever. Um, I'm ever going to speak to, um, but that's for later. Um, we're here in the here and now, and uh, yeah, man, I haven't been really watching Wimbledon that hard. Um, I was literally just having food, and you know, it was on, and I just watch a few games here and there, and then I go upstairs and just get on with my day. Um, but and I was watching the I was watching the Eubanks Medvedev match, and I was like, okay, as soon as I turned it on, this six foot seven brother. Coming through, waxing, bruv, knocking out serves like it's nothing, bruv. Oh my god, the returns, the forehand return he was coming through with, jeez, god damn, it was absurd. It was wet, it was wet, uh, absolutely crazy. Um, and then he bottled it, <laughs> he went to the tie break and then he bottled it, uh, the last set. But, um, it is what it is, man. Quarter finalist, first time he's done that. Um, and you know, he's literally my age, he's older than me by a week. I said, you just, you know, doing a cursory, uh, you know, quick search on him. And I was just like, oh, raw shit, May 6th, nice. Literally, um, just, uh, uh, I think it's fifth anyway, but yeah, like a week or so older than me. And, um, bro, six for seven, wild, absolutely fucking wild. I'm, I'm I was, I was. I was wondering as I was watching, and I, I saw that fact, I was just like, hmm, I wonder how many times he's been asked, A, whether he plays basketball, or B, he should, or them suggesting that, have you tried basketball yet? I think you'd be good at it. It's like, oh, really? Oh, yeah, cool. So I just I just wonder that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, man, hell of a fucking tennis player, that's for damn sure. Um, hopefully get to see him, uh, you know, just uh, making moves in the future. I really hope he becomes a... Uh, becomes a slam winner one day. That'd be kind of cool to see. Because um, Jesus Christ, there is uh, just something about tennis now. Just really not um, not into anymore. Like just you know, a lot of the legends have, you know, retired in the past generation. And apart from maybe Alcaraz, there's uh, kind of just no one trying to actually take the mantle from Djokovic. And Djokovic is the only one from the last generation now. Uh, Murray's still there, but you know, he ain't he ain't winning nothing. Um, but yeah, it's just it's it. I don't know. Domination's a, it's a weird thing, you know. Like I watch F one, and then I used to watch F one, and I I was severely interested, obviously, when Lewis Hamilton was winning everything. Um, but you know, there was always a sense of competition, whether it was from his teammate or from another team. You know, um, I have I've been I haven't watched F one since last year, since well, since Abu Dhabi twenty twenty one. If you know, you know. Um, but. You know, it seen this year like in, at a glance. I'm just like, oh, Max Verstappen won again. Wow, how different, crazy. Literally, it's just him winning, and then everyone else just fighting for scraps. It's just, it's boring. It's boring, right? But um, is did people find Lewis Hellman winning boring? I didn't personally, but you know, I, I can imagine some people did for maybe different reasons than I. Uh, but maybe there's some uh, good faith reasons as to why people didn't rate it. Um, but yeah, I just see Djokovic. I'm just like, don't care. Just, just don't care. Um, I don't find him that entertaining to watch. Um, I don't find most of these people entertaining to watch anymore, to be honest. Um, maybe it's just a matter of uh, I don't know their names, or you know, I don't know their personalities in, in any of that fashion, um, or just their styles. I haven't watched them enough of them. But yeah, I just I don't know. Just not just not really into tennis anymore these days. Um, it is what it is, but. Watching Christopher Eubanks, um, you know, Duffy Medvedev for a couple of se- a couple of sets, and then immediately bottling afterwards, uh, was 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 fun uh, for for the for the meantime. 
And uh, yeah, so that's my that's, that's didn't ask for it, but that's my tennis. Um, <laughs> that's my that's my uh, tennis uh, temperature taken. Um, but yeah, apart from that, I've been kind of just um, I wouldn't say down like uh, in the past. Uh, honestly, past month or so, really, um, I've kind of just felt like just in a odd state. Feel like I'm in a state of limbo again, um, and I hate it. I hate I hate being in this state uh, because I I don't I don't get depressed, right? I've, I don't think I've ever been depressed in my life. Maybe there was one time in my life where I probably could have. If you could probably see me uh, and said he's depressed. Um, but I'm not that low. I'm never. I've never been as low as that. And I can tell you what it is. It was um, in sixth form um, when I was like seventeen, I think. And I had just had a, I had a skin uh, issue, and it just really, uh, just really demoralised me and just made me feel like crap. And I didn't. I didn't know how to sort it, you know. And I kind of just kept going to school, trying to firm it, um, trying to just. Uh, I don't know, just sort it out in in real time, but I didn't really have anything to actually cure it. Um, but yeah, I got sent home one time about it, and uh, you know, I tried to. They said, you know, get it sorted, get a dog's appointment, get it sorted. I'm like, okay, tried to do it, and um, yeah, got it sorted. But um, that was like the only time I was kind of you know close to depressed. Um, but even now, like I can find things that make me happy. I know what makes me happy, um, but I'm just not in a good spot in other places and it's really you know nasty demoralizing right um so yeah i don't know but um we firm it we keep it moving we have a show to do let's get it so we have a society film uh life and music segments to get into and when i said for me before we begin email socials writing all that in the full show notes as well as the music and podcast under the 5 vpn just did a monster retrospective on the roots on digging digits but you go give that a spin and uh give the roots a spin if you haven't given the roots a spin because it's, it's a very fucking good discography it, uh, there's only like maybe two albums that you know are probably not great but the rest of them are pretty freaking decent that's a nine out of eleven that's pretty pretty solid uh, uh hit rate uh in my opinion and with that said, let the beat drop, let's get into the show. In a week where UK government loses legal challenge over giving WhatsApp messages to COVID inquiry, uh, which means we're getting them Boris Johnson WhatsApps. Can't wait, can't wait to fucking look at those, look at that shit. I'll be outstanding. I bet there's hella just bad shit on there. It's going to be great. Uh, yeah, continue the witch hunt and the kangaroo court, of course. Uh, Meta releases threads. Not on it. Don't care. I literally actually got an invite to Blue Sky. I've been on that for like a day. Mid just sucks. There's nothing on it. Um, but, you know, whatever. Uh, the average world temperature reaches highest mark in four decades of record keeping. So that's fun. Uh, France bans fireworks uh, outside authorised public displays during the Bastille Day holiday weekend, which I'm thinking is this weekend, if I'm correctly, or next weekend. Um, I forget which. And lastly, a BBC presenter is suspended for allegedly paying for explicit photographs from a young person. And uh, I wrote that, uh, I, I noted that down, I think, yesterday or the day before, um, uh, yeah, two, two, day, two, two days ago. But um, it's actually... As I record today on the Wednesday, um, has been revealed it was a uh, uh, BBC News presenter Hugh Edwards. Um, his wife actually outed him, which is kind of funny. But um, yeah, apparently he's in some medical, getting some medical help on that front um, for whatever that is. Um, I guess, but uh, yeah, he, he's uh, he's doing, he's getting himself sorted on that front. So uh, yeah, uh, yeah, just um, paying for explicit photos. Mm, don't know about that, Chief. All right, let's begin with this. Um, so this is an article I actually had saved for a while. Um, I initially had it as a long read, and then I read it and actually recorded it, and then realised oh, it's actually not that long. <laughs> so I kind of so I just deleted that recording and uh, just decided to throw it on the most this episode. Um, so yeah, this is from January, but um, I think it's evergreen if, in my mind. Uh, so this is uh, via We Present, um, the We Transfer kind of. I don't know what you want to call it. 
article ideas hub i don't know what you want to call it um but yeah this is by debbie millman's called the personal brand paradox and i think i think this is actually perfect considering um uh you know hopping on blue sky and people hopping on threads and mastodon and all that shit and um it kind of links towards that and uh kind of when i read this the first time i was just like hmm yeah this is kind of true um and it really puts me off honestly i, I do ha- while i do have blue sky i probably won't actually use it to be completely honest with you um i just i don't know i just don't see any use for it anymore if i have to like kind of quote unquote start again on a new platform uh, there's kind of no point you know and uh I don't know if if when whenever Twitter dies, hopefully soon, um, because Jesus Christ, that shit's screaming in pain. Um, but yeah, somebody just shoot it. But, <laughs> but yeah, once that goes, um, it, I might stay on Instagram just for banner. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. The less I'm on, the better, to be honest. Anyway, let's get into this. The cult of personal branding has never been stronger. It's hard to read anything about business, culture, entertainment, and politics these days without bumping into yet another think piece about how critical it is to build a personal brand. There are classes about personal branding. There are books about personal branding. There are even people who create personal brands for other people. I've been a brand consultant for nearly my entire professional life. I've helped create brands for some of the biggest fast food restaurants, carbonate soft drinks, and over-the-counter pharmaceuticals in the world. While I believe uh, branding is one of the most significant cultural influences of our day, there is no doubt that the condition of branding reflects the condition of our culture. But the present preoccupation people have with the development of their personal brand is fraught with inherent contradictions and some rather unsavoury connotations. The idea of a quote-unquote personal brand isn't new or unique. It was first introduced by author and salesman Napoleon Hill in his 1937 book, Think and Grow Rich. Originally promoted as a self-help text, the book proposed that a person's personality could potentially supersede skills and talent to create wealth. To date, the book has sold over 100 million copies, and over the years, the idea of a personal brand evolved to become more mainstream, as celebrities began to endorse brands in print and television ads. In the 1956 book, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life, author Irving Goffman investigated the concept of quote-unquote self-presentation or how people can control how they want to be seen and perceived by others. He used the term dramaturgy, interesting word, haven't used it before, uh, to refer to quote, looking at one's own persona as a drama and treating one's actions as an actor in a play, unquote. So basically, main character syndrome. (laughs) Is that what they get at? He posited that a person could control how they're viewed by others by carefully selecting what they present to the public. In Positioning the Battle for Your Mind, published 25 years later, Al Reese and Jack Trout uh, suggest that it is possible to advance a career by clinically applying business strategies to individuals. But it took another 16 years before the term personal branding became mainstream. In 1997, in a conference room of one of my corporate clients, I first came upon the business magazine Fast Company. The cover of the issue featured clever art mimicking the iconic Tide laundry detergent package. When I examined the design more closely, I was startled to see that the headline, the brand called You, had taken the place of the classic P&G nomenclature. Suddenly, the more traditional visual assets of fast-moving consumer brands were being applied to people. The cover story is written by the author and brand consultant Tom Peters. In it, he boldly declared that a new construction of our corporate selves was now required in the modern marketplace. This identification of individual of the individual as brand was a recognition of cultural trends that reached an api- ap- apotheosis. Love that word, great apotheosis, in the in the 1990s, led by the concert sponsorships of Michael Jackson and Madonna. Brand partnerships had previously been shunned and considered "quote unquote" selling out. Brand thinking became more pervasive, as had the use of uh, media both as a form. Uh, of personal expression and a business tool. As sexy as it seemed at the time, I'm not sure anyone understood the gravity of Peters's uh, proclamation and how quickly it would become table stakes for entrepreneurs, business executives, celebrities, and pretty much anyone selling anything. As for me, I was, a newly, mint- I was newly minted in the branding business and desperate to make a difference. The first sentence of Peters' article, it's a, brand- <laughs> it's a new brand world, uh, became my mantra. 
and uh, and I applied the tools of personal branding to the marketing plan uh, of the brand consultancy I led at the time. The dramatic growth of social media over the last two decades has fueled what is now the professional management of personal identities. While Martha Stewart and, Stewart and Tony Robbins sold their values alongside products, by the turn of the 21st century, celebrities such as Paris Hilton, Kim Kardashian, uh, used the then new social media tools to become famous more for what they projected than any form of actual achievement. Even former President Donald Trump used the idea of personal brand to win the 2016 election. That's a great point, actually. Uh, but what are brands exactly? Brands are, by intention and design, manufactured meaning. They are differentiated by symbols and telegraph beliefs. We use these symbols to communicate our allegiances and then use all sorts of made-up things, religious marks, national flags, family crests, wedding rings, campaign buttons, baseball hats and running shoes to signify these affiliations. People love brands. Everything we consume now, even the most basic commodities like water and salt, are brands. Experiences are brands. Buildings are brands. Broadway musicals are brands. We place logos on eggs and toilet bowls and in form of tattoos. We even use them to mark our bodies. But brands don't actually exist until we make them. Brands are constructed entities people conjure and create with imagination and innovation. The success or failure of that projection is measured by how many people become engaged and invested in the communication. Brands only become significant when there is consensus from enough people who all believe the same thing. But brands are not really real, not in the truest sense of the word. They don't have more compass, they don't have consciousness, and they don't breathe. They don't bleed or cry, they don't feel. Brands very well may be the promise of an experience, but brands don't ever get to experience or reflect upon that experience. Brands can't direct themselves, they have no autonomy, and no matter how much brand consultants try to inject quote-unquote personality or quote-unquote soul into the quote-unquote heart of a brand, most people don't trust them. And why should they? Organisations that own brands have a fiduciary responsibility to, sh to the shareholders. They are legally obligated to do everything possible to provide a return on their investment of funds. This creates a moral conundrum. How do you guarantee long-term profitability and ensure that your brand is ethical, sustainable and good? It's nearly impossible as corporations attempt to straddle the requirements of Wall Street and the demands of an increasingly woke culture. Humans, on the other hand, are complicated and messy and inconsistent. We are remarkably imaginative. Sometimes we are generous, sometimes we are kind, sometimes we lie and cheat. No matter who we are, we have autonomy. And, if we are lucky, are free to decide to do whatever we want, for whatever reason we want. Then we can change our minds and decide to do something altogether different. Or not. When a person aspires to be a brand, they forfeit everything that is truly glorious about being human. Building any brand requires consensus. When we position ourselves as a brand... We are forced to project an image of what we believe most people will approve, approve of and admire and buy into. The moment we cater our creativity to popular opinion is the precise moment we lose our freedom and autonomy. Now, the creation of a personal brand has become de rigueur with a whole new generation of social media influencers aspiring to become brands. Uh, this calculated construction of self has become calibrated, moulded and organised around followers, likes, click-throughs and monetization. as hundreds of million, uh, millions of people live highly filtered lives, publicly punctuated with a constant barrage of pulse personal pixels. Now, don't get me wrong, people can certainly own brands, they can invent and direct brands and they can design, manufacture and promote brands. But rather than manufacturing a personal brand, why not build a reputation? Why not develop our character? Imagine what we could learn from each other if we felt worthy as we are instead of who we, are, who, who we project ourselves to be. Imagine if we could design a way to share who we are without shame or hubris. Ten years after Tom Peters first published The Brand Called You, I had the opportunity to interview him. I asked how he felt about the far-reaching influence of the ideas he had introduced in 1997. I was surprised by his response. He bemoaned how often the brand you idea was misinterpreted. He conceded that while it did indeed relate to the concept of the individual as brand, he felt that it took a narcissistic turn he never intended or anticipated. Perhaps it's time we leave the branding to the brands and the living to the living. See, this is kind of why I struggle to, you know, just do anything apart from what I want to do, if that makes any sense. You know, like, I don't, I, like let's just think of 
Think of the fifth element, right? Or think of the five VPN. Think of what's good, right? These are, these can be quote unquote brands, right? But I just don't see them as that. I just see them as at be, at at, uh, at the largest iconography, I guess. But at the, it's just another name. I'm just putting it to another name um, instead of just having my name on everything. Which obviously the pod, this podcast is. This, this podcast is extremely, you know, personal to me and to my tastes. And um, I constantly wonder if, if and why people listen to this when. I feel like I'm the only person that would be interested in every single thing that I read about, obviously, because why would I read them if I'm not interested in them, right? There are going to be things that, even in this episode, you're not interested in. You may be interested in the personal brand paradox, but you might not be interested in the next uh, in the next segment. That's what uh, it is. What it is. This podcast is really not. This podcast is really not built for, um, for quote unquote content creation. It's not built for. Um, it's not built for, uh, you know, just making, d- doing numbers. It's not built for that. I, if I, if I wanted to build numbers, I'd just talk about the news, right? And just do it in a certain way. Um, but I don't want to do that because I just don't want to. Like, there's other things I want to talk about. Um, there's, you know, it's just life shit I want to talk about. There's music shit I want to talk about. But sometimes there's none of that shit I want to talk about. Sometimes there's something completely different from everything else that I'll talk about this, this episode. Now I'm going to talk about this episode. Um, the fifth element, right? Um, you know, I kind of started it off, uh, you know, just initially as a blog and I had a logo and that's kind of it. You know, it's not a brand, quote unquote. I'm not selling t-shirts. I'm not selling anything. If anything, yeah, I'm not really selling anything. I've never sold anything. Um, I just don't, I just don't really feel like, I just don't really want to put in that work, to be honest. And obviously money makes the world go round, but I just don't feel like um, I should be paid for or get money just for giving shirts that, you know, people might buy, they might wear them, but at the end of the day, it's just going to be landfill, you know. Um, if I'm going to do it, I'd like to do it with, you know, obviously, like you know, stuff like sustainability in mind and, you know, worthy pricing and just, you know, good creativity. I'm not creative when it comes to T-shirts and stuff like that. I don't really care. And I don't want to just stick a logo on, my, on a shirt. Like, I it's not... It's boring to me. It's boring. Um, it's not so. Much, there's no creativity in that. Um, so, you know, I don't really see any of this. Anything I've done uh, as a personal brand, uh, as a brand um, personally, I guess I can be considered uh, the considered one. But even in that, I'm just increasingly becoming less and less interested in doing that. Like I said, I now that I'm on Blue Sky, it kind of makes me wonder why I'm on anything at all. Um, because I'm watching people, you know, post away on Blue Sky and getting, you know, one like and maybe a repost. But <sighs> sure, like, what's the end game? You know, what I mean, that's that's kind of what I keep, I keep thinking about. What's the end game for being on Blue Sky? What's the end game for being on Twitter? What's the end game for being on Instagram? What's the end game for being on any of these places? For me, there's kind of not any end game for it. It's just. It's just a, you know, I kind of use it a place to message people. Sometimes I throw out a thought in there, throw out a thought now and again. You know, I did a couple of tweets about Chris Eubanks because I was just found I find it fascinating in real time. But you know, apart from that, I just post, you know, this episode dropping and you know other episodes dropping and stuff like that. So I don't know. I don't really participate in any. I try not to participate in any of this um, because it is kind of jarring, just watching people try to be a brand, right? It's just. It's just everyone just shucking and jiving is the wrong word, but you know why? Why are you tweeting that? Is that is that is the why? You know what I mean? Just why are you doing that? Um, you know, if people wanna if people are tweeting just you know they're dropping some in or you know they're they're li- they're going live on Twitch or whatever, then yeah, I get it. Um, and then you know then you can go on and do your things on that front. And then you can build from that, but maybe I'm, well, maybe I'm seeing this completely wrong, and I'm just being at all about it. Who knows? But um, yeah, I'm just, I honestly, I'm just trying to be as close to counterculture as I can at this point because uh, there's, there's a lot, a lot of this shit just really doesn't energize me at all anymore. Now 
hop into music and uh, this is a piece I just found kind of fascinating on the face of it and I was like yeah, let's give it a spin because this is something that I never have covered before um, so simply put it's called what Egyptian hip hop says about the country a decade after the military coup um, this is by Jonathan Gaia via Vox and um, yeah just one of those things that you know I just find and the title fascinates me so let's give it a spin let's see what happens 10 years ago a combination of military coup and a popular uprising overthrew Egypt's first democratically elected president, Mohamed Morsi. Uh, the Egyptian military had long been in the country, long been the country's most powerful force behind the scenes, but in its takeover, the government has stepped out from behind the curtain and essentially been running the country ever since. There is a parliament and elections in the country, but there aren't really politics. In 2013, Morsi had only been in office a year to the day. His election followed the 2011 uprising that overthrew longtime dictator Hosni Mubarak. The revolution sparked tremendous hope in Egypt and around the world, but now the country is more repressive than ever. The military's takeover in July 2013 was met by a protest movement of Morsi supporters from the Muslim Brotherhood as well as other political activists. Egyptian security forces uh, crushed their protest camps that summer. The most catastrophic date was August 14, 2013, when over a thousand demonstrators were massacred. Human Rights Watch said it likely constituted crimes against humanity. Likely? Really? Likely? Just carrying a lot of weight. Hundreds of others were sentenced to death, and Morsi himself ultimately died as a prisoner, of what could only be called negligence in the hand of the Egyptian state, collapsing after speaking in court in 2019. Today, the former general uh, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi, who served as Morsi's defence minister, is the president. He won a basically uncontested election in 2018 with 97.8% of the vote and a constitutional referendum extended his rule to 2030. The military has arrested some 60,000 political prisoners, according to human rights monitors, but sources have told me that the number may be considerably higher. Yet political expression endures, and Egyptians have carved space in other realms beyond electoral politics. Literature is a tool of rebellion, graphic novels capture social change, and brave journalists continued their important work. In a new book, Laughter in the Dark, Egypt to the Tune of Change, the Cairo journalist Yasmin El-Rashidi uh, documents how a young generation of musicians have persevered. She profiles, uh, oh, how do you say that? Mah- Mahranget, Marang, uh, why is there two A's? Mara, Maraganat, Maraganat artists who mix hip-hop culture, rap, and Egyptian music to tell their own stories. Quote, in a political environment as fraught and oppressive as Egypt, it is always a risk for people to speak openly about their opinion, uh, opinions and experiences, she writes. Politics and art collapse into one for the Egyptian citizen. They become inseparable, unquote. Al-Rashidi writes regularly for the New York Review of Books and authored the 2016 novel Chronicle of the Last Summer. I reached her by phone in Cairo and our conversation has been lightly edited and condensed. Okay, so this is an interview. Um... All right, let me. I'll pick. I'll pick some. I'll pick some stuff from here, just so you know, I don't rattle on and read the whole thing. Um, I could read the whole thing. It's only a few questions, honestly. And let me get into it. Let's just see where we go. So he asked, you begin the book by rehashing the history of the 2011 revolution, 2013 coup, but you ended up focusing on music. Why is that? I think it's a poor question. So let's get into this one. For everyone who lived through the revolution of 2011, there is a sense of failure and defeat. If, it, if one is to step a step a little bit outside of that and look at the everyday happening in Cairo where I live, objectively, this idea that the revolution is dead, that people are quiet, I can see uh, that the people are quiet, I can see that that wasn't the case. There was something happening with the youth, but not in a political sphere. Just eavesdropping on conversations of young people on the streets, on the public bus and the metro. I can see there was a generation coming of age that seemed to have a very different mindset and mentality to that of my generation. They seem much freer in their expression. I don't necessarily mean politically, but even in talking of sexuality or in their opposite fashion, like when you looked at young boys on the streets, how they were beginning to dress or do their hair, they were obviously influenced by what they were seeing in the West, but they didn't seem as pressured to conform in the way that certainly my generation did. A genre in music that I ended up writing about, Maha, I've already said it and now I've already forgotten it, Mahra Gennett uh, was a was something that I was aware of in 2011, but at the time we didn't call it. I'm gonna call it Mara Gen- Mara Gennett. There you go. I'm just gonna say it properly now. Uh, well, not properly, but wrong. Uh, <laughs> just for the sake of time. But the form was already there, which were uh, which was that it was kind of rap or hip hop. You're beginning to hear these young people in the square and beyond. You know, rap about life. 
2011, I met Sadat and Amur Amu Haha, uh, two of the people I wrote about in the, write about in the book, and was drawn into that sphere of music, but the book didn't come together until several years later. When the genre began to have uh, more of a following, you began to hear it much more frequently. People started to talk about it. It was around that time that the, these two things come together for me, came together for me. The observation about this young generation that I felt were quite uh, different to my own and quite inhibited, uninhibited. And this music that was growing in popularity, I was beginning to realise that more and more young people were listening to. It was an expression of what they were thinking and feeling. And as the political atmosphere grew more and more repressive, the genre only seemed to grow which ran contrary to our beliefs, or to previous patterns in our political history. And then we've always reverted to silence when the fear of crackdown increases. In this case, it seems to be the opposite. Right, we're going to skip the next uh, question and just go to the last one, because it's a few paragraphs and I feel like it's edible. Um, but there is a, there's one question that I skipped, so if you want to read that, um, please link in the description. In the book, he's asked, um, in the book, you talk about the red lines and how they've changed over time and how this genre of hip hop challenges the red lines. How do you see red lines today? And do any of these rappers talk about CC or the government directly? This is interesting because I always wonder how, you know, political rap and politics is always fascinating in how they actually vocalize it. You know, um, I remember Cameron did a, a song or had a verse about 9-11 and it got they it got he had to remove it right um but it was very and this was around the time of 9-11 obviously right um hence why it was um uh, hence why it got uh, removed but i always wonder you know how how people vocalize and how overtly do they vocalize you know their displeasure in a certain person or a certain you know because you know i can i can give you several songs where tories are mentioned <laughs> um uh you know, uh, Ocean Wisdom's Dritty Rucksack is a good one. Um, yeah, there's a, that's a very, a very uh, graphic lyrical detail. Um, anyway, put a hole in his body, especially if it's a Tory. Anyway, let's get to the answer to this. Not directly in their lyrics. There we go. Answered. Answer, answered already. Uh, there's so much said. There's so much that said that isn't overly political, overtly political, but it is political. When you talk about economic circumstances and sense of feeling feeling uh, very stifled by the country, when you speak about those things, you can't really separate them from politics, even if you're not directly addressing the government. Going back to red lines, you tread carefully. I think much more about why I'm putting out now more now than I ever did. It's gotten to a point where anyone who does speak out or is active on social media is a little bit wary because you don't know. On the other hand, on one on the one hand. We know that there are things that upset the government. On the other hand, it is also quite arbitrary. It's arbitrary in terms of who they are going to decide to make an example of next. It's arbitrary in terms of who knows when their next post or tweet is going to go viral because those things irk the authorities. After the experience of 2011 and the years since, it's impossible to switch off from the politics of the country. You can't just. It's become uh, a part... It's become a part of how we live and breathe in a way that for some of us uh, it wasn't before pre-2011. But I've been advised several times by friends, quote, you should really delete this post, unquote. Or I've been around people who are politically active and thought twice or three times about the wording of something they're going to put out because you don't know anymore. The difference between CC and Mubarak is, under Mubarak, it was pretty clear what you could and couldn't say. With this government, there's a lot of grey areas. You just don't know if you're going to say something that crosses a new red line. Because those red lines are shifting according to what's happening in the day to day. All right, that's cool. Um, and I kind of just want to—I don't know—just uh, I, I always find this, I, I always find um, hip hop so fascinating in this aspect, right? Because I don't, f- and, and obviously there's you know different types of music um, that broach politics and you know um, and talk about the times. Sometimes they're just, um, I mean, all music is built, can be built to do that, to have that, you know, political activist edge, right? But, you know, apart from maybe obviously like punk rock, I can't think of, um, I can't really think of anything else, um, any particular genre of music that, you know, just outrightly always goes, you know, always goes against the authorities, right? Um, Hip hop does a lot of that. Obviously, punk rock did a lot of that back in the day. Um, you know, there's a lot of rock genres that, and a rock, lot of rock acts, I'll say now, um, that still do it. And it's cool. It's great. It's great to see. 
Um, but you know, this is a matter of uh, for for these for these guys in in Egypt, it's a matter of um, it's a matter of being jailed or not, <laughs> and you know, uh, Ocean Wisdom ain't getting jailed for put a hole in his body, especially if he's a Tory. Um, you know, U.S. rappers ain't going to jail, right, for for saying what they say. Um, I'm, I'm maybe I don't know what those cases in somewhere like Brazil. Uh, maybe maybe that's um, you know, somewhere in the middle. Um, but you know, it's always fascinating. Uh, the 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 buttons to press when it comes to political activism through music. And uh, yeah, I feel I respect um, I respect her for doing that. I respect her for just um, covering. An aspect of life in a an interesting way, and a a subsection of you know young people in Egypt, you know, and I don't think I don't think that's probably ever covered, um, you know, especially in literature, um, but obviously in music. But you know, I feel I find that really cool the fact that she managed to do that and actually um, drop a story that you know we can all read and actually understand and uh, empathize with when it comes to Egypt because I genuinely didn't know Egypt was this bad I just I genuinely didn't know I genuinely didn't know I don't I don't watch world news like that I don't cover geopolitics that hard um but geez <laughs> it sounds like a dire strait Okay, so hop into film, and uh, I'm gonna be real with you. This is just one of those uh, one of those segments where I don't really have a rhyme or reason. I recently watched this film uh, called Return to Soul um, a couple of months ago at this point, I think, and uh, it's, it's it was a very fascinating watch. It was a very fascinating watch. It's so <clears throat> there's so many layers towards it, and um, you know, uh, it's 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 funny because. Um, <laughs> the, the first paragraph actually is kind of uh, apt because I'm a I'm going to watch um, the new Mission Impossible on Friday uh, tomorrow uh, as this episode drops uh, with my pops and uh, <laughs> David Sexton who writes this uh, for the New Statesman it's called Return to Soul a film made with more genius than cash um, he references the <laughs> Mission Impossible <laughs> in the first paragraph so it's very apt. Um, but yeah, this is a. If you haven't seen this film, I I think you can see it maybe on something like BFI Player. Um, but I saw it in I saw it in BFI Southbank, um, and it was just absolutely stunning. Um, visually very stunning. Um, the characters were just so unique, something I haven't seen before. The dynamics are very interesting, and uh, it's just yeah, it's a very unique film. It's not one of those films that you see every day. Um, it's it's very interesting. So let's jump right into this and see what David Sexton has to say about it. Biggest isn't always best. The seventh installment of Mission Impossible franchise, Dead Reckoning Part 1, uh, is released on uh, 10th of July. It's always rewarding to see how Tom Cruise's running is holding up, but will its enormous budget produce anything of equal intellectual interest? Return to Seoul made a modest budget with 29 days of filming in Korea and two in Romania. It is the third film by 39-year-old French-Cambodian director J- Davy Chow, or Chu Chu, O-U, Chu, Chu, yeah, Chu. Uh, it's it concerns the international adoption of South Korean children, which began at the end of the Korean War in '53, but continued for decades, with some 200,000 children being adopted up until the late 1980s. Chu accompanied a friend, Laura Laura Bad Badoufel, Badoufel uh, who was adopted by a French family, uh, to meet her biological father in Korea when she was in her 20s. An account of that, like many such returns, did not prove easy. The natural difficulties being complicated by fundamental linguistic and cultural incomprehensions. The director turned Badoufle's, Badoufle? Badoufle's story into a script, despite, as he says, not being adopted, Korean, or a woman himself. But this fantastic film is just as much the creation of its star, Park Ji-min, a French-Korean visual artist who had never acted before. She gives an extraordinary performance as Freddie, a woman in her early 20s adopted as a baby by a well-off French couple, now visiting Seoul for the first time. Freddie, willful, disruptive, positively unkind, refuses to conform to the role of others uh, others expect of her, drawn from racist stereotypes of Asian women. She's a force of nature, in her incredibly expressive face, repeatedly seen in extended close-up, holding the whole movie. 
And he's definitely right on that shit. Like, geez, she is so expressive. And, like, it's just so... She's actually... The character's actually kind of unlikable. But you you, you try the whole film just to understand the neuroses and just the... Just the inner workings, and it's it's, so, it's such a challenge. It's really great. Anyway, uh, Park, as can be seen in on stage interviews with Ch- uh, Chu, is self-possessed in just this way, looking about her uh, with the pitiless attentiveness of a hawk. The film is a collaboration, she says in these interviews. When she read Ch- uh, Chu's script, she questioned every scene, and if they hadn't been changed away from the male gaze she found there, she wouldn't have taken part. He nods. Return to Soul never feels like the work of a male director. Never lapses in that familiar emphasis, and I have to, I have to praise that. Just that one paragraph in, just removing the male gaze, because it's something that I constantly think about when I'm writing. Um, I try. I've tried a couple of times, you know, to create something uh, where you know I have a female protagonist, and um, you know I try not to make it male gazey. Um, and uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe I've, I've had a couple, you know, women read it. Um, I haven't, you know, explicitly told them look for male gaziness, gaziness, male gaze, uh, you know, tropes or whatever, but I haven't been told about any of them. So, um, I'm sure there is, there has to be, I hardly, I, I can't give myself credit by saying like, you know, oh, I did it and you know, I got it right first time. No male gaze in this boy. No, 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 not none in this script. I'm a G, like you know, get get on my level, <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, hopefully, hopefully there ain't, you know what I mean. But I'm not giving myself that much credit. But anyway, big up, just um, you know, questioning every scene and every page, and that, I like that. I respect that, and it does come through, and it does come through in the film. It, re- it feels very not male gazy, you know. I respect that. We meet Freddie as she checks into a hostel in Seoul and picks up its sweet-natured French-speaking receptionist Tenor, uh, played by Guka Han. Uh, spending the evening with her in a bar, baffling the other young Koreans she approaches who don't understand how she could be French with such an ancestral Korean face, quote-unquote. She spends the night with a boy while so drunk that she can't remember if they had sex or not. So next morning, she makes sure they do, uh, and then spontaneously goes to the adoption agency to track her biological parents. She meets her repairman father, uh, played by O Kwang Rock, uh, with Tenor not just interpreting but softening Freddie's harsh responses when he begs her to stay in Korea. He's abjectly sorry, calling her and texting her unintellig- unintelligibly when drunk. Uh, she dismisses him. The first section ends with Freddie cruelly dispatching her lovelorn conquest, uh, dancing alone and inviting Tenor to visit her in France. Two years later, Freddie's still in Seoul, completely changed. Her look inspired by Furiosa and Mad Max Fury Road, which, which now that that is said, makes hell of a lot of sense. After hooking up with a French arms dealer, yeah, yeah, arms dealer, yeah. See what I mean? Just get, even me telling, even this telling of this story on on text is just fucking outstanding. It's just like, why an arms dealer? Who the fuck knows? Just why the fuck not? Um, she returns to the man she lives with, a Korean tattoo artist, who surprised her with a birthday party, though she hates birthdays. Again, she loses herself in dance. Five years later, she's in Korea with dopey young Frenchman Maxime in tow. She's vegetarian, sober, mindful, and working for that arms dealer. She meets her father again, uh, and it's better. He's drinking less and learning the piano. When Maxime observes in a cab that she looks just like her dad, she says, I could wipe you from my life with a snap of my fingers. Hmm. Looks, She looks just like her dad. Oh, right. See, I was wondering what's going on there. Okay, that's... Wow. Okay. Damn. And she does say that I could wipe you with from my life with a snap of my fingers. Absolutely brutalized the dude. Like fucking wild. Return. How do you answer that? Imagine that. Just imagine you're the dude. Imagine just responding to that. It's like okay, <laughs> sure. Like um, what do you want to do now? Like fucking hell. Uh, return to soul. Has no easy re- reconciliation. No happy ever after. Ready. Finally, finally meets her biological mother in a moving wordless scene. In the last sequence, she's different again, hiking alone in a wintry landscape, checking into another hotel on her birthday. She says her piano is sight reads and music that modulates into Bach. In that first bar scene, she said that reading a score, quote, you have to be able to analyse the music in one glance, evaluate the danger and jump in, unquote. Return to tackles directly uh, tackles directly the issues around the adoption of Korean children and what happens when they return, but this specifically gives it access to much larger questions of dislocation and belonging, that affect all of us. 
In this way, it's not like it's not unlike Kazuo uh, Ish- Ishiguro's fiction. I loved it uh, just as much as I loved last year's After Sun, another film made with more genius and cash. See it and then see it again. I kind of want to see it again, to be fair. It kind of feels like one of those films that you need to see t- at least twice. Um, okay, so it's in cinemas. I hardly doubt that you... I mean, if you're, if you're in a nearby cinema, good for you. Like, um, but it feels like one of those films that you just... Uh, just so sparsely, uh, sparsely uh, shown. And it's actually shown on Mubi. So it's shown on Mubi. M-U-B-I, if you haven't uh, been on Mubi before. It's a good site. Um, it's a good place to watch films. Um, does a lot of uh, very artsy films. Um, so if you're into that kind of thing... Um, which I am, but just don't have the money for that kind of subscription. Uh, get into it. But yeah, man. Um, just one of those films that I spun, and um, probably the most unique one I've spun this year, and uh, highly respect it. So uh, when I saw when I saw that someone did an article in it, I just felt compelled to read it. Um, so highly encourage Return to Soul. A very odd film. You will not get it first t- first time. Trust me. Even me reading it, it's just you know. Obviously, for me reading it, it's just. Uh, <laughs> it might it might come off as odd, um, and it is, but um, it's all the more fascinating because of it. Okay, so we finished on life, and uh, this is kind of just. I feel like I had to finish the episode on this um, because it just felt weird to do it any other segment. Um, but you know, I've held on. To, I've held on to this one for a while, um, for a couple of weeks, partly just because of the interview. But you know, etc., etc. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to cover this um, because I felt like it was necessary, and uh, also it was written by a friend of Five E, and that really happens. So you know, every time it does happen, I I like to you know lean forward towards it um, because. Big ups writers by, you know, the people I've interviewed, you know what I mean? Friends of 5e, got support. Um, so this is uh, by Tiana Madison. Um, if you haven't uh, spun uh, my interview with her from way back, it must be like, like episode 60-something, way back. Um, I need to interview her again, but I've just never, uh, just never, well, haven't asked. I don't. I think I haven't asked. I probably have asked, but, um, you know, just haven't figured out the time. Uh, anyway, but, um, you know. Miss Madison, Miss T, you know, if you are listening, you know, let's get a crack in. I'd love to, because I feel like out of everyone I've interviewed in the past years, I feel like a lot has happened to her and I kind of want to just touch upon everything because her life is just at a glance in, you know, what she gives, you know, via social media. Um, It's been a lot since that interview, especially. Um, So anyway, um, this relates to the death of Tori Bowie. Um, who was um, her Tiana's um, uh, Miss T's uh, uh, USA teammate? Uh, they won a world, I think it was a world or Olympic relay, yeah, Olympic relay uh, goal together. Um, you know, and uh, she died um, a couple of uh, about a month or so ago now, um, a few weeks ago, uh, from uh, childbirth complications. And um, Tiana has lived through that experience of you know potentially dying from childbirth and the same with her uh with their teammate Alison Felix as well um and you know the fact that two two three of the four I don't think the fourth one I think it's more like a Keenison um hasn't had uh, attempt at a baby that we know of um you know the fact that three of them had complications and one of them has died from it it just kind of highlights you know black maternal health um across the world actually not just in the US but happens in the UK as well um black maternal rates in the UK are, are very bad um compared to other races and um yeah it's just it's just a story that kind of needs to be highlight- highlighted constantly so um anyway this is what she written um in uh, response to everything that's gone down um it's via newsweek it's called i survived the black maternal health crisis my friend didn't uh so let's jump right in I was shocked and angry when rumours of Tori Bowie's death began to circulate. My brain refused to believe that someone I'd stood on top of the world with was gone, and that she may have died alone. Tori had the most joyful spirit and the most radiant smile. Her country accent punctuated a beautiful laugh. I felt the loss deeply. I used to re- used the remainder of my frequent flyer miles to attend her funeral. Red, white and blue flowers framed a closed casket that I couldn't believe she was in. I opened the programme and began to read the obituary written inside for her. And it was then in the pew at, the fun- at her funeral, as the choir sang an upbeat worship song, 
I learned that my teammate Tori had been pregnant. I was already devastated about losing Tori. Upon learning the news of her pregnancy, I was completely shattered. I learned of my own pregnancy after failing to make the 2020 Olympic team and I experienced a whole gamut of emotions. I saw my entire plan and career fall apart as I stared at the word yes on the pregnancy test. Plus, I knew all too well that the what the black maternity what the black maternity mortality rate was and about unequal outcomes for black women in the healthcare system. As a social work student, and especially having already survived my own horrifying experience with dismissive doctors, I was unwilling to risk uh, to put I was unwilling willing to risk putting myself in the hands of that system again. Two years prior, I had become severely anemic due to extreme blood loss. For months, the doctors wished only to treat the anemia with iron infusions. I had to fight to get a transvaginal ultrasound, which revealed a large hemorrhaging tumour in my uterus. I had emergency surgery three hours later. As terrified as I was of being pregnant, I was more frightened by childbirth and the stark reality that I may not survive it. And so just as I soon... Just as soon as I learned I was pregnant, I made an appointment to terminate the pregnancy. However, in the days leading up to the appointment, I began to feel strongly that this baby was meant to be mine. I was meant to be their mama. So my partner and I began to focus on how to survive childbirth in America. When I called to set my first appointment after answering a few of her questions about my age and race, my OBGYN tried to schedule my C-section over the phone. Excuse me, I asked. I wanted to have the baby vaginally. I, had sh- uh, I was shocked to not have been given the option, and for this to have been decided without my input and before I ever stepped foot in the office or met any of the care team for the first time. I knew that finding a doula and a new doctor would take time, so I decided not to move on from my current doctor right away. I wanted, to, I wanted there to be as little disruption in my prenatal care as possible. I was just about to make arrangements to tour a new hospital and birthing centre when I went into labour 26 weeks. I had a contraction in the shower, and as uh, as I dried my body, I noticed there was blood on my towel. I wasn't in pain, and I had not been aware of the risks that so many black women face. I could have been tempted to go lie down and try to sleep it off, but I knew better. Even if it turned out to be nothing, it was better to be safe than sorry. I was six centimetres dilated when we were admitted. Doctors rushed in and out the room, preparing us for the likelihood that I'd be giving birth that night. Ideally, you'd stay pregnant, one doctor said to me in passing. I held on to that. I needed to stay pregnant for a minimum of two more days to get the baby the full course of steroids needed to help kickstart his premature lungs. The team put me in the Trendelenburg position. Did I read that right? Trendelenburg, yeah. Trendelenburg position. Legs higher than my head with the hopes that gravity could help the baby, help keep the baby inside. I was not allowed food or drink because I could be rushing to surgery at any moment. I developed a migraine and my breathing became laboured, but my vitals were fine each time they checked, so they gave me painkillers and sleeping pills. I'd made, it 24, I'd made it 48 hours. The baby had gotten the full course of steroids, and my new goal was to buy him as much time in the womb as I could. Mentally, I could have held on forever, but physically my time was running up. It took four days for my body to begin shutting down. I tried to turn my head to the right to look at my partner and couldn't. I tried to squeeze his hand that was holding mine, but couldn't. I tried to speak, but couldn't. I tried to take deep breaths to push down the rising panic, but couldn't. Alarmed, my partner ran into the hallway to speak to the doctor who rushed back in and took me out of the Trendelenburg position just as my heart rate and the baby's heart rate tanked. That's it, the doctor shouted, we're taking him. Less than 90 seconds later, I was being rolled into the OR. Tears streaming down my face and prayers that my son and I would live to meet each other on my lips. I knew what could happen and I was prepared. I had advanced medical directive and my will with me in my bag. Fuck. That's wild to me. I just just needed to stop there because obviously this this is very extreme and I probably should have done a trigger warning or something of that nature um just any sort of warning um but yeah just i don't know just the visual of having a will in your bag that's crazy to me um but anyways continue i'd been terrified of this reality and i was right to be my son and i survived but the black maternal health crisis is unacceptable especially because it is preventable 
It continues to be a problem because of systemic racism and racial bias embedded in the healthcare system. As well-intentioned as healthcare workers are, what does it say about how equipped they are to care for others if some medical students still believe that black people experience pain differently from than non-black people, or that black people literally have thicker skin than those of other races? How do we move forward when J. Marion Sims, a man widely regarded as the father of gynecology, earned that distinction by experimenting on exclusively enslaved black women without anesthesia? We know that outcomes improve when more black men and women become doctors, and we know that outcomes improve when doctors simply take the time to listen to their patients. So what can be done? So much. On an individual level, those that aren't affected by this reality should start listening and stop trying to explain away these statistics, believing the stories others with lived experiences are telling you. And that's a good tip for anybody, by the way, um, regardless of, you know, whether it's black maternity, race, any intersectional issue that is going on right now, transgenderism, just believe lived experiences. That's the, that's the, that's, that's step one for anybody. Just believe lived experiences when someone's telling you that they got assaulted because they're trans when somebody told you they got shot by police because they're black right believe them and then and then we can ask questions and have a dialogue and go deeper but uh, but if you don't simply if you simply don't believe these people that have these issues that are crying out for change in some fashion then where the fuck can we go if you ain't gonna listen? You need people. See, people need to believe these stories. Um, so I, want, I just wanted to reiterate that. For those of us who are directly affected by the dismal reality, want to actively combat this crisis, educate yourself, then and then relentlessly advocate on your own or others' behalf. Prioritize prenatal care. Go to all of the recommended visits. Ask all of your questions, and don't rationalize away symptoms. Be honest and open with your doctors and take someone to your appointments with you, especially if you don't feel confident speaking up for yourself. Inquire about the number of C-sections a hospital does. It's often a good indicator of where their priorities are. Individuals are more susceptible to change than systems, and if enough of us are committed to this cause, then it stands the reason that we teach a cri- reach a critical mass. Our babies deserve to have mothers, and we deserve to live. So yeah, that was the entirety, and um, yeah, I feel like that was just a necessary read. Um, while the you know return to soul read probably wasn't <laughs> necessary in any way, I just felt like reading it. I felt like this is something I just needed to read, and a topic that needs to be covered. Um, yeah, it's just man unfortunate that um, Tory Bowie died because of this, and you know to the um, to the dying alone part makes it you know much more just. Um, sad um and i can't imagine you know just uh, the how it hit you know people that were literally on the same you know career trajectory career path on this career career path as tori Bowie, as such as addison felix and miss tiana madison um that must be just so striking to have somebody you know maybe not close personally but close in terms of you know what you guys do on the day to day, and yeah, it's just um, yeah, it's a uh, it's a uh, it's a uh, it's horrible to think about. But um, I'm glad Miss Miss Madison's just honestly really a great writer. Um, I've you know I've read her, I've read her blogs. I bought uh, I bought her book, <laughs> Survivor Advance. I, I still have her book. Uh, yeah, I still have her book on my bookshelf. Um, she is a great writer. Um, on top of you know being a world class athlete. Um, and now she's, you know, going into, um, going into care work. Was it social care? Um, I think, I think, I think she put a social care student, social work student and, um, you know, all the best to her on that front. And, um, you know, baby Kai is, um, growing. I think I saw literally, uh, today, um, they took a, his first passport photo. So, um, big ups to her on that front and, um, uh, yeah, man, all the best to, all the best to them. And of course, you know, RIP Miss Tori Bowie. And with that said, ladies and gentlemen, we shall leave it there from the Fifth End Podcast Network. I've been Charlie Taylor. This has been good. Intro music comes with too much by Vanilla. Thanks to Chill Music for bid to use a track. And charismatic, uh, charismatic interlude, charismatic for the interlude by Mr. Nappy High, friend of 5 Nappy High. Thanks for that again. And link in the full show notes. That was a butchering of my outro. 
Anyway, that's it. I hope you all have a good week. I shall desperately try and do the same because I can't get any other than this. Until next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.